0: Welcome, everyone, to the Cardano Effect podcast, episode 85. The purpose of this podcast is to take high-level developer information and projects that are occurring within the Cardano space and break them down into bite sized consumable pieces of information for everyday use. I'm your host, Philippe, and let's get this podcast started. Rick and myself are the hosts of the Cardano Effect podcast today, as usual, and we have our very special live stream series. We have something for everyone on this channel. If you're not unfamiliar with our live stream series, it's where we recap all the events that are happening within the Cardano ecosystem over the past few weeks. And we also cover some blockchain topics in general. And we also engage with live feedback on the YouTube comments. So this is a chance for us to engage with you. You can ask questions. We're going to respond and we're trying to make it as interactive as possible. So this is our very calm and mellow series that we wrap up our weeks with. If you haven't seen the past few episodes of the Cardano Effect podcast, I I highly recommend that you go and check those out. A lot of very pertinent information for everyone. So without further ado, I'd like to remind everyone that none of what we say on this podcast is financial advice. Remember, you are your best financial advisor. And if you don't think you are, you need to find someone who's qualified to do so. So Rick, how are you doing this Sunday morning? What's going on? What's happening? Hey,
1: I'm doing great, Philippe. Thank you for asking. I was up late last night. Charles had an AMA going live stream and uh, we were setting up for today's live stream with the graphic that we turned the last whiteboard video into a graphic and that's the main thing we're going to be going over today along with some of the latest news and samba philippe's going to talk to you about samba so thanks for that introduction philippe i would like to give a shout out to the cardano foundation for sponsoring this podcast thank you very much cardano foundation a reminder to any viewers new to this podcast this podcast is available on all audio streaming platforms all right so let's get into the meat of what we're doing today the first thing is the whiteboard video the transition to shelly right big news that's the biggest news Hopefully everyone has seen the whiteboard video that Charles did. It's almost like a two-year update to his previous, his first whiteboard video in October 2017. And this one is more detailed. This is where the engineering details come into play. So keep in mind that his whiteboard video is the authoritative source of information. It's like the common ground of truth. And then what we're going to go over today is to give you the opportunity to ask questions and discuss in the chat and provide inputs about what the whiteboard means to you and if you have questions about it. But again, it was a lot of information. It's a massive amount of information uh, with a lot of engineering details. So uh, I'm human. I might make mistakes. Please don't beat me up with, well, Rick said, or well, Philippe said, just don't beat us up. Remember, refer back to the original videos, authoritative source of information, keep your eyes and ears peeled as new information comes out rapidly over the next couple of months as we transition into a Shelly mainnet, all right? So, Philippe, should I go ahead and put the uh, graphic up? And let's uh, take a look at that, right?
0: Let's go for it. Let's go for it. And it okay. seems like Charles is in the chat, so we have a great audience to discuss oh, my goodness. recent... Re- <laughs> How are you doing, Charles?
1: <laughs> Thank you, Charles. You're awesome, man. I'm so glad you're here. That way, if I completely screw it up, you can laugh at me. <laughs> 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 okay, let me get this a uh, little bit of screen juggling for a moment. So here's the, here is a summary of the whiteboard presentation. We're going to start up here at the top left where it says Byron, the static federated nodes with IOHK, CF, and EMURGO. This is where we're at today, where you have the federated nodes, and then we take it this large is just the general path that brings us all the way to the bottom right where we have a Shelly mainnet, decentralized stake pools, and we're up and running. And then in the process here, we have the details. Each one of these colored layers represents a step towards Shelly. Starting here on the top left box, that says end of life for ITN. So that's one of the next big steps that's involved here, along with the balance check and the consolidation of rewards. Now, there was another comment in the original whiteboard video about the exchange full listing. I do not understand. I did not understand what that meant. I wasn't sure. So I put it in there because it kind of fit on that level of the process. So, um, and that leads us into triggering the hard fork. So these things have to occur before we trigger the hard fork. And if I need to update this graphic, please let me know. I have it on a PowerPoint slide and I'll share this with you guys over in Telegram and wherever else. That way we can get it laid out a little better. All right. So, Philippe, any comments, questions, concerns, outbursts? I got to hop back over to the chat because I'm uh, a little bit blind right
0: now. No, everything looks good. Everything looks good. I think the stepwise function, we're, we're going over the main themes here. So if you're not viewing this, if you're just listening to the podcast right now, we're discussing the transition from Byron to Shelley. And so this is, we're going from the Rust implementation of Jormungandr all the way to the Haskell implementation of Shelley. And there are various different steps that need to take place before we hit that. So after we trigger that hard fork and we shut off the Byron relays, and once again, refer to Charles's video, where the exchanges are going to have to upgrade. So Byron wallets are going to be, they're going to have to shut off. So this is going to be an interesting thing as far as timing because I wonder how long it's going to take for all exchanges to get on board. Are we going to be able to extrapolate information based on the major exchange changes, or are we going to have to wait for every single exchange that ADA is listed on before we move on to that next step? Because it's important for Bittrex and Binance to upgrade, but is it important for... The smaller exchanges that may not be as respondent for them to upgrade. Are we going to have to wait for 100 percent or 95 percent or 90 percent, 85 percent? What's the metric going to be until we move to that next step?
1: Yes. And please don't ask us when Coinbase. We can't answer that because if there is a Coinbase agreement, then it would be under NDA. If it's under NDA, you can't say it's under NDA. So please, we don't know. We have no inside intel. We can't. say <laughs> We don't know. Yes. So that was a big question on Charles AMA last ever because when Coinbase, when Coinbase, guys. Okay, sorry, guys. So be patient. Don't worry. Good things come to those who wait. We'll we'll, we'll be good. I'm not worried about Coinbase. So uh, we're gonna go to the next stuff. So we get the uh, the first layer here in the dark blue, and as we transition to green. When the network is ready, we trigger the hard fork and shut off the Byron, Byron relays. And this, someone asked a question that said, dual consensus, what is that? That is the phase we are currently in, where you have the old Byron consensus available on the federated nodes and OBFT. Philippe, I actually screen captured an old graphic. I'm going to share that real quick, okay? okay. Just so Go it makes it. more sense. Go for it. It'll help answer that question. Let me, let me refer to – now, these two diagrams are – Congruent. They totally agree with each other. So let me refer to the one Duncan Coots did. You guys probably remember this from last year. This was the Ouroboros Classic over here on the left where we currently are. We're actually right about here right now. We have Ouroboros BFT running and you have Daedalus Flight is out, for example, stuff like that. And there's some overlap. There's a period of overlap where you're going to have two consensus protocols running at the same time. Now, this diagram is kind of like a broader high-level view. But as time goes on, which where we're at today, more engineering details come to light, more problems get solved, and things become more granular. So we're done with this diagram. This is the one we started off with. And these diagrams do agree, but now we have greater detail. Okay, so we're going to go back to the greater detailed. Okay, so we're back over to the... Whiteboard video of triggering a hard fork and shutting off the Byron relays. Um, the exchanges must upgrade at this point. The Byron wallets will be shut off. I'm not sure if that means like Daedalus 0.15.1. I think that's what it means.
0: I think that's what it okay. means. Yes. Yes. And
1: and people need to move to Flight. So we're over here now in the dark blue, and we're and we're heading towards the light blue. This is the next layer of what needs to occur. Okay. Oh, along with that fleet, I missed the most important part: the you know, balance check and consolidating the awards, and then those will be moved over here to the new mainnet once we get over to the new mainnet.
0: And once again, everyone that's not familiar with this entire process, if you've been delegating your stake, your stake to any kind of stake pool, whether you're using Daedalus or Yoroi. Basically, what's gonna happen is that testnet ADA that you're using to stake, you are creating rewards ADA, and that rewards ADA will be added to your mainnet balance. So it's not like you're going to have your testnet ADA. Say you have 10,000 ADA on the mainnet, and then you got 10,000 testnet ADA. You're not gonna get 10,000 testnet ADA added to your mainnet balance plus the rewards you received during the staking period. You're just gonna be getting the rewards ADA added to your mainnet balance. So you're not doubling up. You're just getting those rewards ADA added to that mainnet ADA, if that makes any sense. So if you got 1,000 ADA as rewards during the duration of the testnet, you will have 11,000 ADA once we go back to that mainnet Shelly.
1: Yep. Okay. And so, sorry, I was just checking our technology here. And what I was trying to do, Philippe, is... What Philippe and I tested right before we started this, we wanted to be have people dial in. But the problem with Zoom, although they've solved some security problems, other people would see your phone number. Like, OK, Zoom, good job. You screwed up security again. Now, Charles did say happy to chat about the roadmap uh, in the chat. Philippe, you should, I, I don't want to like do this kind of ad hoc, but I, I can drop Charles the link if you want to let him jump in if he can. I don't know if he's prepared for that, but we can just keep going with what we got.
0: Yeah, I mean, you can drop them the link if you want.
1: It's 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 kind of a, a not a very eloquent thing for me to do, but I can I can try doing that and see if it works. Okay. Yeah. So I, I'll, I'll give the, I'll give it a shot. All right. So let's go back to the light blue area was is where we left off, and that leads us to the Shelley hybrid phase in the deep parameter. You ready for that part? Yes. And I'll sort the link. Yes. Okay? So what happens in the next phase, the Shelley hybrid phase? We have two consensus protocols running at the same time. You have the hard fork combinator that I show over here on the right. Shelly hybrid phase, the deep parameter kicks in, the blocks will be made by both the federated nodes and the stake pools.
0: Once again, federated nodes for anyone that's a little bit confused are the nodes that are operating from case, the Cardano Foundation, and Emergo. Those are the three entities running federated nodes.
1: Yeah, those are the ones we are on currently. So now that brings us to the D parameter. The D parameter is what allows the decentralization process where currently we are on the federated nodes. The 100% core nodes here is the federated nodes. The D parameter is what allows you to slowly decentralize over time. And Charles first spoke of this at least well over a year ago where he said the network starts off completely federated and then slowly transitions over time, becomes more and more decentralized until it's completely handed over to the stake pools. Well, this D parameter allows you to perform that process. So it starts with D equals one, then it's 100% the federated nodes. Now there's a time set aside over here where it says, normally you can set the decrement to like 0.1, so it goes from one to 0.9, 0.8, or set the decrement to 0.2, where it goes from one to 0.8, 0.6, 0.4. And that will affect the amount of time it takes to uh, transition to decentralized. Now, I believe if a catastrophic failure occurs or a catastrophic bug occurs, somehow you can stop the march, the process, the decentralization process, um, and let the federated nodes that are under, I guess, better controls maintain control of the network to prevent. Oh, there's, yeah. Charles I got the link for you there. Sorry. I was trying to talk and copy and paste at the same time. I got too many windows open, man. I'm old. I used to be able to manage as many windows as possible. I just can't do it anymore. <laughs> I at least try like I got, I got like six windows open and I'm, I start to get confused. <laughs> I used to be able to do like 10 windows, man, but not anymore. <laughs> just not there. <laughs>
0: just expanding on what Rick said. That's Before we went live, we wanted to make sure that everyone understood the main theme. And basically, it means that we're going from federated nodes to pool-operated nodes. And that D factor, that D variable, is just a stepwise function to slowly transition the node power from federated all the way down to pool nodes. So that D equals 1 to D equals 0.8 to D equals 0.6, it's just a decrement of time that it's going to take for power to transition from one set of nodes to the next set of nodes. Because this is not going to be done with the flip of a switch. That wouldn't make sense. That's not responsible. It's not like IOHK is going to just be hand over 100% of the power to pool-operated nodes overnight, right, when we hit Shelly mainnet. It's going to be a slow and gradual process just to make sure everything is... Going well and it's going smooth because once you, once you go, you can't turn back. It's not like it's going to be hundred percent pool operated nodes and we're just going to be able to hand the node power back over to IOHK, Cardano Foundation and Mergo. It's like, it's a point of no return. So we're going to go and we're going to hit it, hit our milestones in a stepwise function.
1: Yep. It's going to be logical, organized. Please pay close attention to the latest communications. I'm going to stop the share for a moment because I lost track. If I get, if someone joins the meeting, I was looking to see if Charles wanted to jump in and you know, the little uh, Zoom made some security efforts and they put the participant list on the right-hand side. And I can't see it when I'm sharing my screen. <laughs> Can you see it, Philippe? If someone tries to join, I don't think so.
0: I don't, I don't see it. I don't see, yeah. it. Okay. I don't see it.
1: So a little bit of a learning process there little bit of a learning process. Now, we do have to be verbose. So I'm going to hop back over to the screen share. What we'll do is, if Charles, if you hop in, give me a holler in chat or Telegram. That way I know to unshare my screen and then let you in. Because Zoom did up the security, but they didn't get all of it. They're close, but not all there. All right. So we're back on the Shelly hybrid phase here. We can transition from blue to green, right? Yes. Yeah. The key thing for you, for you the user, and me, the user, the wallet user, is... Rotate your wallet once we shift into the Shelley phase and we have dual consensus running, OBFT, Prowse running at the same time, and more information will come out. You got to make sure you rotate your wallet. You may have to take your 12-word passphrase or your 15-word passphrase and put it into a new wallet. Maybe. We don't know yet, but we'll figure it out uh, or that will be figured out and that information will be published. Did we finish with the D parameter? Oh, yeah, the the increment, the decrement, it'll take approximately 40 days. Please emphasize the word approximately. It could be longer. It could take 50 or 60 or less. If the decrement number is set to 0.2, that would cause you go from D equals 1 to D equals 0. It would take about 20 days approximately to get to full decentralization. And once D equals 0, that brings us down to the darkest green. That's when we're fully decentralized. And all blocks are produced by pools. There are zero core nodes. Uh, But before we get to the dark green, there's this light green area where Charles eloquently described you have to responsibly retire the federation without catastrophic issues. Responsibly retire. That was a very good way of putting it. Okay. And also check that you have a large set of pools with high uptime. So it's going to be a gradual transition. Very well thought out plan, I think. Very well laid out for execution.
0: Yeah. So I I think this is a very good visual to look at. Uh, Rick, you, you did a great job putting this together. For all the listeners that are listening to this podcast and not viewing it, this is like that one YouTube podcast that you should probably just jump on and just check this screen out. I think it's a very good summary. And the theme is that we're going towards full decentralization, and this is the process or the little roadmap that's going to take place in order for us to get there. Oh, there he is. Hey, Charles.
2: Hey, guys. Can you hear me? Yes. Good morning, Charles. How are you? Very good. Very good. I, uh, I got up this Saturday morning. and I saw you guys were live streaming, and this is uh, about my whiteboard video. So I figured, well, I got nothing better to do. Why don't I, I just come on and talk to you guys? That sounds good.
1: I was up late last night watching your live stream uh, playing Whack-A-Mole.
2: <laughs> yeah, there you go. I was up late, too. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. That was good. So where are we at with the uh, with the uh, whiteboard? Uh, I noticed a diagram you created. Very nice work.
1: All right. Yeah, I, I had to watch your replay. I had to watch your replay a couple times and kind of like, what am I looking at? All right. <laughs> so we, I'll, I'll pop it up on the screen. And then when you're talking, you'll be the, the presenter on the screen. So you'll just be able to see it on your display as soon as I hit this.
2: I can do a screen share, so I might actually be able to write on the screen. Perfect.
0: What we really wanted to explain to the viewers and the listeners is that D parameter and exactly how this is going to take place, the step-by-step incrementation that is going to transition the nodes from a federated status over to the stake pool status or community pools.
2: Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So there was... um, really three things we had to accomplish. Uh, One, the original Cerakel code was not fit for purpose, and it was never designed in a way that made it really easy for us to just go from a static federated mode to a decentralized mode. Uh, So there was kind of a half step that needed to be done, and that was what Byron Reboot was all about, where we would gracefully replaced the old code with a new code that's still static and federated, but it had hooks built into it to make it a lot easier for us to transition uh, to Shelley. Uh, so that took quite a bit of time to figure out how to do that without disruption. And then the other thing is that if you're a real cryptocurrency, you have to be able to validate the chain all the way back to Genesis. So we actually have three sets of ledger rules that um, had to be thought carefully about the transitions between all those ledger rules. Uh, so anyway, that's what we're doing with the Byron reboot. And um, Flight Candidate 4 just came out. And next week, uh, we'll probably do another Flight Candidate early in the week. And then at the back end of the week, we'll do um, mainnet Daedalus. So 100% of is gone from the consumer side. And the relays and core nodes are all being rotated out. Then uh, what happens is uh, we uh, pick a date and say, okay, here's Shelley and we give everybody the Shelly client. And there's kind of two sets of consumers for that. Uh, one consumer are the exchanges, uh, people like Roy, who need an infrastructure to deploy their wallets. And that has everything about Shelly in it. So Orbor's Pros, the delegation code, stake pool stuff, the, uh, all some network stuff, everything Shelly related, but it's actually not turned on. It's basically sitting there, it's ready to go, and your client can understand all these things uh, but it's still operating on a legacy mode, so like Byron reboot. And then at some point, we say, okay, hard fork time. And at that point, uh, all that Shelley stuff turns on. And then at that point, no Byron stuff is working anymore. So the Byron relays are shut off, and you're going to have to rotate to a new system. And we call that the Shelley hybrid phase. That's what you have on your diagram right here. And basically, at that point, uh, time equals zero for that very first epoch, we're still making blocks like we're making with Warpor's BFT, uh, just like we're making right now, now that we're in the reboot era. But we have this little d parameter, and every epoch, we can reduce that d parameter. It's like a wall coming down, and uh, more and more slots are being made by stateful operators. Uh, so uh, basically we have two sets of metrics uh, that are going to uh, to operate on that that we're going to look at. One uh, is uh, stuff like the amount of registered stake pools, the amount of ADA that has actually been delegated, um, you know, these types of things, are so qualitative and quantitative metrics that tell us the overall performance, health, and level of decentralization of the system. And uh, the other is a time metric. So it's an either-or scenario. So either... Uh, we hit some predetermined set of things where we say, yeah, this is as decentralized as it's going to get. Let's just set D to zero. Or we say, look, we can't run this. We can't provide tra- training wheels forever. Uh, good luck, everybody. We're going to have to set D to zero. And what we're going to do is in May or June, somewhere in that time frame, we'll, we'll announce um, what that process is going to be. And we'll write a full article on the um, on the D parameter Uh, and basically explain how it technically works, point to it in the ledger rules, because it's already been formally specified. So if you've read the formal specifications, you guys can see it there. Uh, And then explain basically um, a hypothetical schedule of how we would ratchet D down. So in my video, I said, well, an obvious way to do it would be a 10% per decrement. And if that was the case, then after about 40 to 50 days, depending upon the epic length, uh, D would equal zero. Now, a question that's come up is, can we go in the other direction? And the answer is yes. So if those qualitative or quantitative parameters, uh, for whatever reason, are regressing, or uh, if there is some catastrophic bug that's been discovered, which is highly unlikely, but you always have to plan in advance for these things while you put lifeboats on a ship, uh, that that at that point, we could technically ratchet D, for example, from 0.8 to 0.9, or even take it all the way back up to 1. Uh, But that's an unlikely scenario. And after D hits zero, uh, what we're going to do is remove the ability to update D uh, and just basically completely take that out using the the update system. And uh, then uh, all future system parameters, long-term, long-term is the short-term because things are coming to an end, uh, will be handled by Voltaire. And so uh, things like transaction fees and other things like that can be readjusted through a democratic process. So uh, our goal is to get D down to zero as quickly as possible. It's one of those things that's less necessary because we had the ITN. When we first created D, we were debating whether to have an ITN or not. Uh, So this would have been like Haskell's version of an incentivized testnet effectively. But it is important to understand that when we start lowering D, like we go from 1 to 0.9, Ah, uh, the stake pools are not validating trans- uh, testnet transactions. They're validating mainnet transactions. So this is real. It's uh, it's running part of the network, and it's a it's a great asset test uh, that doesn't exactly hand the keys of the Ferrari to the to the the new driver. It makes sure that people actually know what they're doing. Uh, but it's something that we can rapidly lower or slowly lower, and that's just going to be completely based on a, a metric-based uh, approach.
0: So Charles, this is a dynamic process, if I'm understanding this correctly. So if we hit D equals 0.1 and we're right about where we're going towards that 100% pool node decentralization, will the metrics for IOHK, will they be released publicly? Like, will those goals be released publicly as far as we want to hit this and this and this milestone? Or is this going to be something internal and then when you feel oh, like it's I, good.
2: I, I would absolutely prefer, because it's a decentralized system, I'd absolutely prefer all those metrics to be as, as transparent as possible. And I mean, they're, they're pretty straightforward ideas, like the amount of ADA in circulation, that stake, the amount of registered stake pools, the stake pool performance. We're already tracking a lot of those metrics on the Incentivized Testnet. The only reason we haven't released this decision set yet is that uh, we have to do a post-mortem on the ITN uh, and uh, kind of gather what happened there? And then we have to make some extrapolations. Um, The data set is um, contaminated a little bit because there were a lot of quality issues with the ITN in the very beginning, as you guys experienced. And so uh, the question is, did those quality issues and the fact that we only had one snapshot uh, give us an artificially low participation level? And could we expect a higher participation level on mainnet, for example? But despite that, I think somewhere around 40% of data supplies being staked which is exceedingly good. That's better than Tron at mainnet. And it's a little less than Tezos, but not significantly so. So those are the kinds of metrics that we'd uh, we'd look at. And then we just create some targets. And uh, we'd say, as long as we stay, for example, one way we could do say as long as we stay at this threshold or above, uh, we'll just keep decrementing by this amount per, per epoch. And we'll keep that progress going. That could be an example of what we do. But we'll write a blog post And um, probably what we'll do is have Kevin Hammond and Duncan come on the show and talk to you guys and uh, answer all questions. Uh, And they can kind of walk you through an example schedule of how D gets to zero. Another important thing that wasn't mentioned in the whiteboard video, but it is important for decentralization, is that uh, we still are operating in a relay mode with our network stack. Uh, so when we launched Shelley, the peer-to-peer governor is there, but a lot of the peer-to-peer mechanics haven't been turned on yet. We didn't want to overcomplicate the launch. So um, over the next few months, we're going to be turning on the peer-to-peer components as well. But that's also required for decentralization, or else you know we could shut the relays down and you wouldn't be able to sync the blockchain. So these are kind of two factors that are going to be working at the same time. One is the decrementing of D, and then the other is the turning on the peer-to-peer mechanics of the system once we clear uh, the the first wave of uh, Shelley, but that doesn't have any disruption on rewards or anything like that. But it's it's one of those components that's necessary for decentralization. Okay.
1: Yeah, Charles, I'm I'm curious about the deep parameter, and, and we can also get to some of the questions in chat that are related. Once that begins, uh, once we begin that Shelley hybrid phase and activate the deep parameter, can it be paused, or or is there some risk involved? Like if you hit forty, if you say, all right, we're going to use the decrement 0.1, and then it will take 40 days because it'll about four or five days per epic. unlike the ITN, which is currently one, and then the timer starts going. If there's any catastrophic events, is there a way to either pause it or does it just give you enough time to compensate
2: and get back on track? It's a manual update process. So the way that we change that parameter is by the, the update mechanism that's built into Cardano. So we, we manually update it and we choose with that manual update, the, the amount of decrement or increment at that time. So it's not like it's uh, we flip a switch and it automatically does 0.10 every four days. It's a decision you make uh, basically every uh, every epoch. But we would probably follow a schedule. So we'd say if if these thresholds look good, then just let, let's just do a 0.1 every, uh, every epoch. But the reason we did it as a manual is that it reduced um, complexity. And then second... Uh, you know, it uh, allowed us to bring the product to market a little bit faster. So th- there was really no reason to automate that. Um, you know, it, it, and also the other thing is we, we didn't have a lot of these metrics until we had the ITN. And so we designed the system prior to the ITN. And so it would be really hard to kind of grok what should, uh, you know, we automate around. And so we figured, let's just leave it as a manual process. It's going to be fast, you know, one to two months, no more than three, I'd say, uh, so why why bother trying to you know invent a Roop Goldberg machine to automatically count down? Let's just manually update it every four to five days uh, based upon what we're seeing. And uh, it, from what we've seen from the ITN, uh, there's no reason to believe that this process is going to last more than one to two months.
1: Okay, thank you for that. I think manually update is good risk management. I think that was a good call.
2: And are
0: we just one more question? Are we going to have any delays from the exchanges? Um, are when you communicate with the major exchanges, are they going to hinder the process of getting to D equals zero? Just based on maybe the speed of their implementation of of certain aspects
2: of the of the project. From an exchange perspective, both on the wallet and the um, Shelley related components, so staking as a service, um, the D parameter has nothing to do with um, with the uh, the, the Shelly rollout. That that's like a, that's that's kind of at a different level. Uh, and the reason being is that, from an exchanges perspective, once they download and run the Shelley node and integrate against that, it doesn't matter if blocks are being made in or or SBFt or blocks are being made via Prowse, uh, the, the network functions identically for them. They're just uh, they're just uh, you know either staking or processing transactions or whatever. Uh, so no, that's not going to have any impact. But the delay for getting to the hard fork to turn Shelly on, there is an open question of how long should exchanges have to upgrade their infrastructure, because their current SL or Byron reboot infrastructure does need to be upgraded to run with Shelly. Very simple things could break their, their infrastructure if they're not careful. Like, for example, we're changing the address format from where we're currently at, our proprietary format, to BEC32. So if they don't upgrade from Byron Reboot to the new Shelley node, then when you go and put your BEC32 address into their little withdraw field on the Exchange Web GUI and say, send my ADA to this address, it'll not validate as a proper address, for example, because the old code doesn't understand that address. So these are examples of, of things that would break if they don't upgrade. So exchanges do need to upgrade. So the question is, when in this roadmap will the exchanges um, have a final set of libraries and technology to integrate against and with a little rubber stamp saying that if you build against this, uh, we're good to go. And that's going to be at the balance check phase. So uh, we just released our first set of GraphQL libraries uh, and uh, the, we're, we're going to have a big uh, exposition of them at the product update at the end of the month. And uh, we'll be updating those one more time uh, and that'll update right at the end of the balance, right right when the balance check begins. And then that is the upgrade window. There'll be a running Shelly testnet. Uh, they'll have all the libraries that are feature complete and no API changes or anything like that. And say, you guys need to build against this if you, if you want to actually list ADA post-Shelly hard fork. And then the question is, how long should that upgrade window be? Um, so I think probably from when we released the Shelly uh, mainnet um, software for people to download, maybe about four weeks before the hard fork happened. Now, why the community cares about this is that there are no staking rewards during that time period because we're still running Byron OBFT blocks and no delegation is possible and no stake pools are registered. So there's kind of this, this, this back and forth between when do we turn on Shelley and how long do we need to wait responsibly for exchanges and people to upgrade to Shelly. Uh, and so maybe four weeks is the, the proper window. Technically, it could be a day. Uh, but then you know, the vast majority of people probably hadn't upgraded at that point. So we had a lot of conversations with exchanges. Nick Nafak did that. And uh, they told us that they need between four to six weeks to burn in new software. So if we do the balance check, give it a week or two, and then do the main net Shelly, uh, and then do a four-week um, upgrade window, then that would give them the six weeks that they need to be able to get their software ready to go. And allow us to enter the Shelley hybrid phase. Does that make sense? That does. That does.
1: Absolutely. And and I wouldn't I wouldn't stick dates on it. I would just say as it plays out, we have a pretty good idea of how long it would take. Charles, if it's okay, I would like to shift to a few questions in chat. We have a some really good stuff over there. Sure. So Metroplex, yes, who who also asks very good questions on Twitter. Thank you, Metroplex, for your your questions there. Asks during this transition. Is there any point along the way to full decentralization that Daedalus clients will experience connectivity issues? If so, more or less, where on this graph could we see issues? So, kind of where are we transitioning Daedalus and where could there be connectivity issues? Thank you, MetroPlay.
2: Yeah, so that's one of the reasons why uh, the network protocol in the Byron reboot is um, basically the Shelley network protocol. So, uh, in terms of damn dogs, uh, so in terms of the uh, in terms of uh, connectivity issues, I wouldn't anticipate anywhere on this graph us having connectivity issues. I mean, outside of ordinary issues that people run into, the network protocol is pretty stable. And this is actually one of the reasons why we didn't, for example, roll out the peer-to-peer at the same time with the, um, the decentralization update. It, because, you know, if you do two th- major things at the same time, you know, when you have a problem, it's hard to do a root cause and know, well, is it from A or from B or from some combination of both? So we wanted to make sure that we built out all of the state pool infrastructure. We got Shelly out the door. We're, we fully decentralized the consensus side of the network. And then gradually make changes to the network stack and add peer-to-peer in, uh, you know, somewhere in the kind of the halfway Shelley or Gogan timeframe. So I don't anticipate any connecting to network issues above and beyond the ordinary issues that people are having. And if you're having those issues right now, almost certainly upgrading to the Daedalus flight will fix them. Uh, we found an overwhelmingly positive response, especially for Flight Candidate 4. And when we hit mainnet next week for uh, regular Daedalus, I think a lot of people are going to be pleasantly surprised. The problem is, you know, Windows is just complicated. And there's all these legacy installations. And then there's old state and old data and things get jammed up. And literally there's this combinatorial explosion of debugging for that. So it's impossible to think of every case or test for every case. So a lot of cases sometimes you just need to do a clean install and wipe the whole thing and it, it somehow un, unscrews it. And every, every now and then you run into weird configurations like weird firewall, weird router and these things. And it just is impossible to kind of figure out what the hell is going on. In some cases we found ISP level censorship, especially in Asia, for cryptocurrencies. So they have a perfect configuration, and a perfect network, but their internet service provider is doing packet filtering and somehow we've been flagged and they said, oh, that's bad and it's causing quality of service issues. So the only way to solve that is with a VPN. So there's uh, there's a lot of complexity when you talk about networking, but in general, the rollout that we have here is, I, I think, sufficient to make it roughly dis- uh, disruption-free um, and then the, the real connecting to network is going to come when we do the peer-to-peer. That's going to be the first asset test of our major new design. We think it works. We've done a lot of testing and simulations for it, but it, you can't say it works until it works. You have to actually roll it out and see it. And that's going to be a, a fun upgrade for everybody. But then at that point, we're totally decentralized because all block production and all data relay is done by the community, not us. And no one actor can shut down the network. That's your litmus test. This is why Ripple is centralized and Bitcoin is not because, you know, there's a small group of people on the XRP side who could say, well, let's just shut it down and shut the whole network down. Uh, Whereas Bitcoin, no actor, no matter how powerful has the ability to stop the relay or stop consensus. So at the end of the Shelley hybrid phase, that's where we're going to be at. No actor can shut the network down uh, no actor has the ability to destruct operations.
1: Yeah, that was an interesting thing I learned about IOTA too. They turned off the they had a problem, they turned off the coordinator and poof and shut down whole blockchain. <laughs> I thought, what?
2: I didn't know it was <laughs> I know. And, and I got brutally criticized by their community years ago when I because uh, I read the Tangle paper, and I said, guys, the only way you can implement this in its current form is using a centralized serializer. And they're like, yeah, but we'll remove that, Governor. You know, very quick. I said, okay, when are you going to do that? Oh, really, a few months. I said, okay. And they used to shut the whole network down. It's like, you're not a cryptocurrency then.
1: <laughs> yeah, some guy turned it off. <laughs> That's what RJM Coin kept saying on Twitter. Every time that they tried to say it, it said, some guy turned it off. <laughs> There's right. some really good questions over here uh, that, that are with, within the scope of this podcast. So, Charles, thank you for coming on here. Wondersound Radio asks, can there be hard forks when Shelley is launched? I believe the question is, can there be hard forks after Shelley is launched?
2: Yeah, of course. Every cryptocurrency goes through that. And um, the, the real question is, should the system uh, understand its own design and be able to know it's moving from configuration one to configuration two and so forth? Or should this be a meta process that lives outside of the system? This is the, uh, the classical question. So cryptocurrencies like Ethereum and Bitcoin, hard forks live outside of the system. Uh, cryptocurrencies like Tezos, they actually attempt to make this some form of an on-chain process. And what we're doing is we're not going as far as them, but we are choosing a hybrid style system where uh, we have a democratic process and a CIP process. And actually when we launch Shelley, we'll we'll unveil the CIP process version one. Uh, And Voltaire is, is imminent. We're actually getting very close to that. So look for some announcements soon. Um, but uh, anyway, um, when those two artifacts are there, then we can start talking about soft and hard forks from that lens. And we can get on-chain consent to do it. But the system will not be aware of its own design in that it'll be able to distinguish between version 1 and 2. However, because of the hard fork combinator design, that little thing that we came up with, um, it's, when we do hard forks, we have a graceful way of doing that, where you can validate multiple sets of ledger rules and consensus rules at the same time and keep everything straight and preserve your security guarantees. It's not like this jarring hard fork where the old system's dead and the new system's there and you know, everything's wonky. So the idea is that over time, we can upgrade and evolve that hard fork combinator idea uh, to actually have an on-chain specification of the design and have certified clients and know that you're running the proper version of the software and also have graceful uh, uh, backward compatibility where we can gradually uh, uh, decay things. Like for example, if you're a Java programmer, you have all these JVMs, you know, Java version eight, Java version seven and so forth. And at what point do you break compatibility with the past? So you could conceivably have ideas of versions of Plutus and versions of, uh, of different parts of our system And say, okay, smart contracts will guarantee to have compatibility for five years or six years or this many epics. And at that point, um, contracts from that era will no longer work. So this could be an upgrade path in 10 years or 20 years that we could have. And it's going to grow out of the hard fork combinator concept. And we'll start versioning things inside the system. And then uh, the democratic system will start taking over. So yes, the succinct answer is there will be hard forks. But the, the more involved answer is that everybody has them. And it's more of a question of, you know, how much on-chain support do you want to facilitate that process and make it relatively sta- straightforward?
1: Okay. And, you know, that was perfect timing because that leads right... There was a question from said chams in chat, which you, you've already answered most of it. For the hard fork combinator, will that be used seamlessly to upgrade the blockchain while keeping the same token? Or will these hard forks generate new tokens? Or are both scenarios possible? And I believe he answered most of that. And, but in general, the general idea is, it's transparent to the user. Is that correct?
2: Yeah, there there are no new tokens. I mean, technically, if we decided to run OPFT Byron ourselves in, a, in parallel with Shelley, like like what we're effectually doing with the ITN versus um, the current mainnet, you you then generate a new token through that process. But uh, we're shutting that node down, so there's just one token. Um, this is one long chain of history. It's backward compatible to the beginning. So no new tokens are generated, and it's not going to be like EOS when they went from an ERC20 token to their mainnet. Uh you know, if you have ADA the day before, uh, if you you'll still have ADA the day after, and that ADA is the same ADA. There's no difference between those two. Okay.
1: Excellent. Thank yeah. you, Charles, and thank you, said James, And Philippe, we have a follow-up question from the Elite Trance, another one of our frequent flyers. Okay. <laughs> and the Elite Trance asks. So essentially, we can create a flight wallet, send the funds to that wallet, and we'll be good to go for Shelly. And he also wants to wish his friend Rodney happy birthday. He's new and watching. Happy birthday, Rodney. So basically, I mean, this is a good question. Would I make a new wallet and send funds to it, or would I put in my 12 or 15-word word
2: word seed? So let's be clear about something. Um, You have to download the Shelly Wallet when the Shelly upgrade window begins. And so that's the window before. So there are kind of three phases. There's the testnet phase, the upgrade window, and the hybrid phase. Those are the three things we need to do to get Shelly completely out the door. So we are entering the testnet phase, and that's going to run rapidly. It starts with friends and family. Uh, and uh, we're already starting to get ready for that. Sam Leathers is going around making a list and counting it twice. And then that's just to get the kinks out to make sure that we don't have a bad experience when we have the first real testnet and that first real testnet has a node and a CLI. So there's no wallet back in there, but there is some functionality in that CLI enough to be able to, to do all the staking related things. The whole point there is to get the stake pool operators familiar with deployment and get them ready to go. Then the last testnet is the balance check. And at that point, that's the full end to end consumer product in that it's your first opportunity as a consumer to check it. So you're going to verify that your ITN rewards and your mainnet balance can merge together and then everything is good there and you actually use the wallet. Now, very shortly after the balance check is done, we enter in the upgrade phase. And that means that Byron Reboot and the Shelley wallets will be living in the same mainnet. And everybody's going to get an upgrade notice saying you need to upgrade to Shelley. We have this month out of time, probably four weeks before we're going to do the hard fork and your old Byron stuff isn't going to work at that point. So you need to upgrade your wallet. Okay, so it'll be very simple. You just go to Daedalus Wallet, download your wallet, and upgrade it like you've always done it, or maybe it'll push through as an automated update. We'll see which one we can do or both. Uh, so, so there'll be an upgrade. It'll be a pretty simple process for the vast majority of people. And at that point, if you have that Shelley wallet, when we cross the hard fork threshold, Everything just turns on. So all the great areas and the GUI just turn on, and it's there. But you don't need to do anything. You don't need to download anything more at that point. However, to stake and to use your ADA in the Shelley era, you're going to have to do a rotation. You have to go from the old address to the new address, the BEC32 address, which has all the staking capabilities and functionality. So there's probably going to be a new wallet creation uh, phase for that. It just makes sense because it it cleans up a lot of the cryptography. It gives us an external blockchain-based signal to see how many people have migrated. So we know how many active live users are there. You can also, by counting those migrations, count real life people, because generally the whole thing gets migrated over. So that's one person. So you can connect addresses to people in that sense. It gives a nice iterator to figure out who's there. Uh, And that's the only way you're gonna be able to stake with that ADA. So you have to do that rotation. Uh, so, yeah, there probably will be a step to create a new wallet, uh, and that's actually built as a workflow in our GUI in that Shelly wallet. So there's a step-by-step process that every user can go through, and I think it's four or five steps, and uh, it's very straightforward and so forth. Uh, and that's a one-time thing, and then you're living in the Shelly era, and you'll never have to, to do that migration again. Uh, and then it gets everybody on a, a same slate. Now, there is an open question about state transfer. So do you need to restore your wallet before you generate the new wallet to rotate everything through? Um, and I think the answer to that is probably most likely not. So I don't think you're going to have to take your original 12 keywords and uh, rotate it. However, uh, we will make that final judgment call at the, uh, at the uh, balance check era. So as we get close to that, we'll make sure that uh, we have an answer for that question. And this has some deep technical reasons behind it about can we move the state from one wallet design to the other, et cetera, et cetera. But I think the answer is no. You don't, you're don't. you not going to have to enter your original 12 keywords, restore your wallet, and then rotate to a new wallet. If there's a rotation, it's going to be from your old wallet to your new wallet, uh, and, uh, and that's a one-time thing. So you'll create another set of 12 keywords, et cetera, et cetera. Does that make sense?
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, yes it, does. it does.
2: Yes, it does. Yep. Yeah.
1: There's a few other questions on here. These might be kind of difficult to answer right now, but one person asked, what is the anticipated pledge on mainnet? And another person asked, what is the anticipated percent return? So let's start with the the percent return. Will it be the same as ITN or will that be different?
2: Similar to the ITN, but it'll be a little different. The ITN used a different reward model. Than the uh, Haskell model the Haskell model is based on what's in the formal specifications so we already have a, a formula for that the um, I- implementation of the rust model was done with a simpler formula so that we could bring it out to market a little faster and also it was you know it, it's the Haskell thing is thinking about rewards for years and years and years the rust thing was just rewards for a few months and so it didn't really make sense to, to have a model that perfectly replicated that and spent all that development time. Uh, so uh, refer to the specifications uh, for this, and uh, we'll update our reward calculator uh, to reflect the Haskell side because we have a reward calculator for the ITN, and that'll be updated during the uh, the testnet era. And uh, we'll play around with uh, some of those last parameters. Uh, and then the other question was, what was the other it was question? Was about pledge? It was reward- pledge. Ah, the pledge amounts. Yes. Yeah. So pledging is really interesting. Um, So pledging is just the beginning of a broader concept of locking tokens. And there are many cases where you'd want to lock tokens for a variety of reasons. So for example, Hydra, uh, securing Hydra channels, it's nice to know that there's a bond behind them. So that pledge mechanism could conceivably be doubly used there. Furthermore, with the voting system, what we're probably going to do to make sure exchanges can't participate in voting is have a locking mechanism for voting, where you have to lock your tokens for a period of time to be eligible to vote for the following voting window. Now, exchanges couldn't do that because they need to have on-demand accounts by regulation. So the, you need to know that when you go and ask for your ADA, your ADA is there, if they have to lock it for a month, for example, then it's like a CD, they can't, uh, they can't take it out. So, uh, so this would prevent participation on the exchange side. So that pledge mechanism could be conceivably reused for all of these scenarios. It could be used for a stake pool or bonding for the layer two solutions like Hydra, and it could be used for the generation of a voting token uh, or a voting credential for the following voting window. And as for the pledge amounts, um, the initial wave of pledge amounts are specified in the Haskell specification, and that will also be uh, the reward calculator uh, specifying that. There is an open question, and we still fight about this of automation of payments and things like that. Uh, so right now, payments are automated for people who delegate the pools. But if your pledge amount is federated, meaning if five guys get together at a bar, and pool their ADA together to meet a pledge amount, uh, the operator, the person who holds the keys, uh, is trusted to delegate those rewards to the, those five guys. And we've gone back and forth about whether that should be automated or not. So there are still some. Uh, game theoretic questions, security questions, and, uh, and other things that are going around pledging. But for the first version, I think we'll just do what we wrote in the specification. And the way we design the system, it's pretty easy to play with these parameters. So these are some of those last-minute final tunings that we do. Now, the reason we have the pledge mechanic is DDoS resistance. Um, and, uh, and also, it, uh, it, it allows us to actually start getting a sense of the Gini coefficient of the system.
1: Okay, thank you. We have a lot of questions in chat, so I want to stick to the topic-related ones that we have while we're here. One person asked that, uh, well, kind of topic-related, Daedalus is built using Electron, and is it possible to have Bitcoin in Daedalus someday?
2: Yeah, the way that we designed Daedalus was always so that it would be a multi-asset wallet because we're going to have multi-asset standard. So people are going to issue their tokens and Daedalus should be able to account not only ADA, but also user-issued assets. So given that we have a GUI view that allows you to have multiple assets, it makes a lot of sense to say, well, then couldn't we reuse that GUI view for Dash or Bitcoin or Litecoin or other uh, cryptocurrencies? The wallet backend was built was a level of abstraction and genericism with it. So it's not an ADA wallet, the wallet backend. It's a UTXO wallet. So conceivably later generations of Adrestia could basically just be reparameterized to support transactions from Bitcoin or from Litecoin. Uh, that's not in scope right now because there's a heck of a lot of work we have to do to get all the Shelley and Gogan and these other things out. But that's a long-term goal of the Adrestia infrastructure. Now, the advantage here is that <laughs> this is a game changer for listing, uh, because basically once addressed, it can be reparameterized for Bitcoin or Litecoin or Dash or these types of things. If you're an exchange operator, you just load your wallet back end with a parameterization, and then suddenly you have a Bitcoin wallet, and then suddenly you have a Litecoin wallet. But all the APIs are exactly the same across all these things, and it's built with formal methods, and it's really fast, and it does automated DTXO management, prevents ETXO fragmentation. There's a lot of coolness there. Uh, But that's quite a bit of work to get to that level of genericism. If we were going to support other cryptocurrencies, uh, likely what we would do is make sure that we support cryptocurrencies in the IOHK family first. So I'd be much more inclined to suggest ETC and teacher projects over, for example, Bitcoin Cash or something like that. However, you know, if these communities reach out to us and they say, hey, we'll pay you boatload of money to go and do this for us. Uh, we'd be happy to do that. Bring that into the uh, into the family, and long term, I think that's something we can aspire to. And then it's just modules. So when you want Bitcoin, you just download the Bitcoin module, and then suddenly you have Bitcoin support, similar to kind of like the Ledger Live experience, where you pick your app and then you kind of have that. and You install it, so forth.
0: Mm-hmm. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, that would be cl- that would be a clean experience. I've been waiting for that, and multi asset support within Daedalus. I think it would allow a lot of Cardano users and different people that are not even involved in the project to download the Daedalus wallet and just have it at their main point of reference on their computer. And I think that's and great. And by the way,
2: that strengthens Cardano because you know, Daedalus is a full node. And so you know, they download it for their Bitcoin wallet. You know, you, you, one of the things we're really curious is, could we have a primary full node experience, but then everything else is like um, uh, a light node experience? So uh, so you, know, you can have a light-client n- light uh, light uh, Bitcoin wallet, but then a full-node Cardano. So everybody just downloads Daedalus for their primary wallet for whatever cryptocurrency they have. And every time they do that, it strengthens the network effect of Cardano because you have more full-nodes in circulation. So we have been looking at clever things like that. Um, one of the things I'm really curious about is whether we can bundle recursive snarks with this, and then we can offer something entirely new. So instead of just saying it's a light-client cl- light trusted experience, you can have full node security with a live client for collection of different cryptocurrencies. So it could become the de facto wallet. And then of course we would make sure that you still download Cardano as a full node, but do it as a background process in a very graceful way. So over time it becomes that. So, you know, we always think around how do you create incentives to create more network effect and more distribution of the Cardano software and the Cardano code. And that's, uh, and that's uh, certainly conversations we've had.
1: Okay. Nice. There was a question from Gordo. He wants to know what's behind those doors. Off topic. <laughs> I bet there's doggies behind the doors. The dogs are over
2: there in the sunroom. Uh, behind there is the library. And, uh, and then there's a bedroom behind the library and the living room. And then the kitchen is that way over there. It's an old farmhouse. It was built in 1907. And I've been gradually renovating it. And boy, you do not underestimate the amount of work you have to do when you buy a house that's 100 years old.
1: I bet it's a lot. Does it, yeah. does it have creosote rafters, you know, the stuff that they put on telephone poles? I grew up in a house that was uh, built in, I think it was 1908. And when you would go in the basement, it had a funny smell. It smelled like telephone poles, you know, that
2: sticky stuff on there, creosote. Yeah, it, it had those. It had those back uh, before they did the last major remodeling in the 1980s. Uh, so very, very apt, you know, your old homes. Uh, yeah, that, and they, they took that out about 30 years ago. Uh, but uh, it's been the wiring and plumbing in particular have been a big challenge. And I just got done putting windows and a new roof on. The windows cost as much as a damn Lamborghini did. it. Uh, they just love wrapping these damn homes in windows. There's like 88 of them. And I got uh, double paint Anderson put in.
1: Yeah, I'll bet. I'll bet. I learned about old homes. My grandpa built his own basement. It was a. Uh the house was on blocks, and uh, it was the old coal mining row houses, and he dug underneath the house and blew it up with dynamite because he worked in a coal mine, so he had access to dynamite, and he dug out underneath the house, built his own basement, and in the process, he learned how to be a plumber. So, when the coal mines closed up, he he was a plumber, <laughs> and it was all creosote. Was I, think, well, I, all- I don't
2: know if I'd ever feel comfortable, like, <laughs> exploding dynamite underneath my home. That's uh, – your, your, your family has some brass balls. <laughs> They're from Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that explains everything. The Scottish they get a pass on those things. They're just allowed to use that. my grandfather used a lot of dynamite. He was a before he was a doctor, he was a smoke jumper. And uh, what smoke jumpers would do is they'd parachute the forest fires and with dynamite and blast it to create fire lines. Oh so just think about how crazy that is. In the nineteen fifties, you're jumping out of planes into fire with dynamite on your
1: back. Wow. It's as crazy
2: as it gets. Wow. <sighs> Yeah. Back in my day. <laughs> <laughs> we never gave him shit yeah. for his past. Like, whatever he says, just pop a bill. He gets away with yeah, it. Yeah. There's a reason why we don't do that anymore. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. He sat up with nine guys the first year and three of them died. Oh. It, was, it was a dangerous job. But back then you could do that because we didn't have any lawyers. So nobody cared about liability.
1: Yeah. There were less lawyers and more explosives. So right. it was a trade-off. Maybe, that was, maybe that's what we're going to go back to. <laughs>
0: Charles, thank you for showing up on this live stream. By the way, I think you properly explained everything that you did in the whiteboard video, and every time you know it's it's more succinct and basically all the themes that we wanted to hit today, I think we hit. Uh, what do you think, Rick? And Samba, Samba. Oh yeah, we Samba have to talk about Samba. Samba
1: was in the title. Philippe, you're more researched on that. Do you have anything? What okay. Do you know let, about me, let
0: me pull up my tab because I closed my tab. Okay. Accidentally.
1: I'm just reviewing if there's any other questions in there. Thank you, everyone, for your questions. We always appreciate it. We we get some of the best questions coming from the folks in Cardano. Y'all are awesome. Y'all are awesome.
2: Right. Well, I mean, it's it's the rolling this stuff out is never easy, and I, we recognize that there's a huge communication requirement to it, uh, above and beyond just the, the enormity of the technical side. But you know this is how we work. So years ago we said, hey, we we should have a podcast. You know, the, the community needs one to explain stuff. And so then you know Cardano Effect got put together. And then I said, all right, I'll pay for it for a little bit and mm-hmm. just to get it bootstrapped. Now the Cardano Foundation's sponsoring it. But then the Treasury's coming out and then that'll cover it. So there's this gradual decentralization of the Cardano effect from a centralized thing to kind of a community oriented thing to like being directly paid for by uh, the, the system itself and similarly, you know, that's how you roll out a cryptocurrency is that, you know You start with this, this idea. There's a small group of founders They kind of bootstrap it. They get it where it needs to go and then you bring in the community They start taking over critical components and then over time it eventually becomes fully resilient and decentralized And if we design it correctly, it's you can push it poke it and damage it, but you never can break it It's self-healing uh, this is particularly complicated because I think this is the first real case where somebody has tried to cleanly go from a static and federated system to a dynamic and decentralized system. Uh, the, if, like for example, Ripple woke up tomorrow and said we're going to do that, uh, it would be hell. They'd have to spend one to two years figuring it out and rolling it out and doing it without damaging people's value or disrupting the network, or even just simple concerns like how do I rotate my wallet? How do I avoid you know losing? network availability and suddenly I'm sitting and connecting to network, these are big deals to people. It's, just, it's their money. And so you have to you have to take it very, very seriously. And I think the single most important component is just how do we explain it to people? So I had a few meetings that week and I said, shit, I need to make a whiteboard video about this. And I, I, I got to wrap my whole head around every part of this. And so I, I did the whiteboard and uh, then I said, all right, people are going to talk about the whiteboard video, like you guys and other people, and then we'll see all the questions that come up. And then it gives us some lead time to create dedicated marketing material to explain each of these components and make sure that everybody's question is answered. So a lot more is coming, you know, specifically things on each era, the blog posts, uh, will explain that, videos, more episodes, more more stuff. And uh, if there, we see reoccurring questions coming again and again, do let us know because then we'll make sure that we make specific content for that. But it's going to take a while to get this percolated all the way through.
0: Charles, just to give you like a quick FYI, I think between stake pool operators, the most contested topic in conversation right now is the pledge and how significant it's going to be for stake pool operators whether or not that means locking a significant amount of ADA for minimal returns, or is the reward to risk, the risk to reward ratio going to be advantageous for operators to consider locking up a tremendous amount of pledge in order to run a stake pool? I think that's one of the questions that's been floating around. And I've talked to several other stake pool operators and I talked to uh, Rick on the phone a couple of days ago about it. So Um, I'm not sure who the correct person to speak with. I mean, when we had, um, who was it on Aparna? Aparna said that we need to speak to Duncan. So, yeah.
2: yeah, So, uh, Yeah, so we'll probably do a hybrid episode then, a dual episode. So while we're talking about the D parameter, uh, let's also have a part of that episode on the pledge mechanics. And what we can do is bring in Phil Kant and... uh, bring in Kevin Hammond and Duncan, uh, I think that team would be able to, to really go through the history behind the pledge, why it's there, what, what we've learned from the ITN, uh, et cetera, et cetera. We, we can have that episode. I mean, it's there for a reason. It's a DDoS protection mechanism, and it's uh, directly related to the level of decentralization of the system. And the idea is that the pledge amount should go down over time because the amount of state pools should increase over time. So the amount Im- I think, did we lose him?
1: We might have lost
2: you, Charles, if you
1: can still hear me. We'll give it a moment. Um, so the key is, as, as to what Charles was saying there, with Pledge, I did, there's two ways I, I calculated Pledge on what could it be. Now, this is all speculation. Based on wallet number 1,000, Pledge could be about 3 million. Correct. If you want 1,000 pulls. I also did a, a Twitter poll that came up with, I had options of up to 100,000. 500,000, 1 million plus, okay? And the, the median number was about 500,000. So if, if you look at the math and say, well, people want, well, 100,000 got the most votes. So people want 100,000. But if you count down the wallet, 1,000, and you see that it's 3 million, somewhere in between lies the correct number to start with, I think.
0: Yes.
2: So that's kind yes. of a broad... Hey guys, that's a sorry really, about that. My internet crashed. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes, I can hear you. Okay. Sorry about that. Uh, yeah, so, uh, where did I cut out?
1: On pledge, as we were talking about
0: having a hybrid episode with the Parna and Phil oh, Kahn, uh, yeah, yes. Kevin
2: Hammond, Duncan and Phil Kant uh, would Kahn, be yeah. Yeah, the three people to to talk to about that. And, and Phil has been dealing with specifications of the, these things for over two years. Like he, his job was to literally figure out how to translate stuff from prose to math. So there's probably few people alive that know more about what we've specified than he does. And Kevin Hammond is the node product manager. So his job is to worry about consensus network and ledger rules. So consensus includes the pledge component. And he was actually the guy who created the very first rewards calculator. So he's, uh, he's, he's very up to speed on these things. And, of course, Duncan is one of the, the chief software architects. So he's been around this whole thing. But, I mean, as I, I mentioned, um, the, 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 there's this relationship between K, the amount of stake rules, and the pledge amount, because what we'd like is K to increase over time, and thus the pledge amount decreases over time, uh, so that you can have many more smaller pools as opposed to these giant pools. But that's closely related to the amount of ADA that people actually hold, so the Gini coefficient of cryptocurrency. And there's no explicit metric in the system to actually tell us that. Uh, so one of the things we recognized early on in this process is that identity is not a first-class citizen with any cryptocurrency. Identity is a derivative So, you know, what you tend to do is say this collection of accounts or part of the UTXO belongs to Bob or belongs to Alice or something like that. But you have all these actors interacting with the system independent of their stake. Like IOHK, it's an entity and we're doing things and we have some influence in the system, but that's not connected directly to our stake. That's in addition to our stake. So the point of Prism is to introduce an artifact into Cardano, the DID that we can operate around and talk around and so forth. So we can start answering questions of how many unique stake pools are there, You know, what's the difference between Alice and Bob, and these things and uh, so forth. So that's a third component into the pledging conversation. One is the amount of stake pools, the other is the, the explicit amount, as long as side distribution of the ADA, and three is how do you identify unique people in the system and reason about them and talk around them, build reputations around them and so forth. You know, so it's not perfect, um, but nothing is with this. And no matter what we do, there's somebody who's going to be pissed off. That's just how this is. And, you know, you really have to ask yourself, what problem are you trying to solve and not move the goalposts? Our problem we're trying to solve is having a resilient, decentralized, dynamic system, which has high participation. And uh, no one actor has the ability to run the system. So true decentralization. Uh, The next wave of problems is egalitarianism and fairness, saying, "Okay, we have a functional system, but it's going to have some holes in it in that it's not so fair to certain constituencies and groups, for example, the poor but motivated. So if you don't have a lot of ADA, you're always going to have less representation in the system, regardless of the fact that you may be a great contributor. So there needs to be, in addition to ADA, a proof of merit uh, where people are doing great work and they get more influence on the system and the maintenance of the system above and beyond that. And this is exactly what we would ask to start designing and building for generation two of the system for the next five years. You know, how do we modify the current decision metrics of voting and proof of stake and consensus from just raw plutocratic, the amount of tokens you hold, to something else that seems to be a little bit more representative of the community as a whole. That's a research question. So, you know, what we have now from what we've seen with the ITN and from what we've seen with simulations, we feel very comfortable that it'll create a stable, dynamic system that is decentralized. Uh, And it has some egalitarian elements to it, uh, but they're not perfect. And, you know, pledging is at the heart of all of that. So it'd be cool to have an episode and say, what is it? Why is it there? Uh, What did we learn from the ITN? What will happen over time? as we this network evolves is including the K parameter. And then when we introduce the did concept and we start creating this concept of identity divorced from assets, how can we use that to build merit reputation that could potentially be uh, another factor for rewards? Um, The other thing you have to consider is that right now we're just rewarding state transitions. So a transaction is a state transition. So you go move assets from Alice to Bob or you trigger a smart contract. You're going from state one to state two or state alpha to state beta. Okay, so that's what you're rewarded. But there are other things that need to be compensated for the system to be sustainable long term. Uh, Network relay and data storage or two. This will become very evident when the blockchain is a petabyte. And this will become very evident when there are hundreds of thousands of transactions every second floating around the system 10 years or 20 years. Uh, The the cost of maintaining that infrastructure is not trivial. It's it's going to be very expensive, but it won't directly be compensated with our current reward model. So, you know, this is not the end of the story by far. There's going to have to be some diversity with the reward function to compensate other facilities that people participate in. And it may be the case that, well, consensus stays the same way. There are other things that users can do that don't require you to hold ADA, but you provide value to the system and you get rewards uh, proportional to that. So uh, so it's uh, just the beginning of an economy. It's certainly not the end.
1: Nice. You know, Charles, you bring up a good point. Um, I'm wondering when the blockchain gets to, say, a terabyte, I have a terabyte drive on this laptop. Will the checkpoints or the snarks or something prevent – it from growing to a terabyte on my laptop because, for example, I did not delete the the Emerald Wallet for Ethereum. I had it in full wallet mode until like April of 2018 and I had to delete it and put it in light mode because it hit like 600 gigabytes. And I'm like, ah, right. you know, and I don't want to see that happen to Daedalus. How do we how do we prevent that?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. It's another example of what the next scope of work can look like in five years. So we can totally solve this problem in a three to five year time horizon. So you solve it in kind of three ways and you have to do all of them. One, you need a proof mechanism that is relatively constant or logarithmic size to the data set. Okay, So basically, no matter how big the blockchain gets, only with a set amount of information or a slowly growing set of information, uh, you will always be able to use the system with full security. So recursive snarks, snarks in general, they are the path to do that. Uh, and there are tons of great ideas, and we're actually exploring those ideas, everything from Halo to other things. And this is going to be a completely solved problem in probably the two to four-year time horizon. So you know, if we had dedicated full-time people, we could accelerate it and put it into Cardano. So what does that mean from a user experience position? It means that every user is able to know, regardless of how big and grand Cardano gets, uh, that the history that they need is accurate. And when they receive funds, those funds exist. So the double-spent problem, the problem of existence, the existence of a double spend, the existence of the tokens is verified, and the non-existence of a double-spent is verified. You can always verify those two proofs. Okay, so that's one part. But then there are two other parts, this concept of inclusive accountability uh, and uh, this concept of a network resilience and maintenance. So just because you can verify history is right, it does not guarantee availability. And if your blockchain is like a petabyte in size, no one actor will have that entire thing. So you need to move from a replicated storage mechanism to a decentralized storage mechanism. So replicated is where everybody has a copy of the blockchain. Decentralized means you have part of it, but not all of it. Okay, so how do you make that transition from replicated to decentralized, but still have high availability? Uh, So first, you have to figure out a mechanism to do that. Second, you have to incentivize people to use that mechanism to get a strong guarantee that it's there. So uh, that's what IPFS and these Filecoin and these Chia guys are, are trying to do. There are projects that are exploring that and they have a lot of money and they're working real hard on it, but that's a lot of research. And I think it can be solved in a reasonable way in three to five years. Uh, A corollary to this is the storage of the code itself for Cardano. So the specifications, the voting record, uh, all of these things, you could wire on a system like Git as well. So you're self-hosting all of the meta stuff around Cardano in addition to just the history of Cardano. The third problem that has to be solved is death of data. So Satoshi had a very unrealistic dream of everything is preserved forever. And that just can't be the case For commercial activity. What's relevant on a global scale is different from what's relevant on a local scale. So if you and Philippe decide that you're going to create a business together, the creation of that business, the start date, uh, the shareholding ledger, all these things are probably things that are historical and should be preserved with immutability. But, you know, uh, there's all kinds of things that you guys could do above and beyond that that are only your concern and should not be stored indefinitely to the end of time. On a, on a network. Similarly, let's say you start, uh, you know, Rick Philippe coin and it's not a commercial success and all the holders have left. Well, why should we then create, keep Rick Philippe coin forever on the Cardano blockchain? So there's this uncomfortable conversation with pruning. of When do you throw information away? And under what context do you do that? and Do you make information on the system an economic actor? I mean, that people have to pay a deposit or renew the storage or something like that. And that's a that's a really difficult conversation because you're starting to get away from Satoshi's vision of just safe everything. He had the luxury of doing that with Bitcoin, because Bitcoin was just one thing. It had no smart contracts, you couldn't issue other assets, you couldn't put metadata into it. So he's like, all oh, Bitcoin's transaction record is sacred, but your metadata is not necessarily the case. So that's the third problem that also has to be solved. So you have to solve all three of them to achieve a global scale system. One is a maintenance thing, it's like garbage collection. You have to gradually clean things up over time one thing is basically how do you move from you know replicated to decentralized and you know actually everybody has a fragment and then collectively we we all check each other and then the inclusive accountability issue of how do i know when i look at history without having all the history that the history is correct so that's the new data model of you know the next five years and when we ask for another five years or so forth Uh, That's what we're going to ask for, is that that part of the research scope will have ideas in each of those categories of things we want to do, and we'll go and throw great scientists and great engineers at it, and before the end of that roadmap, we'll have solutions in each of those buckets. But if we solve that, what does that mean for the user? It means that your light client is your full client. You you have a scalable level of participation, and that's user-driven. So how much data you relay, how much data that you store... Uh, is up to you. And it's commensurate with the resources of your system. It'll never disrupt normal operations of your system. And yet you're still a good actor in the system. So there's no longer this full node, not full node dichotomy. Instead, it's going to be a spectrum. And you just decide how good of a citizen you want to be in that system. And no matter if you're a little bit on the spectrum or a lot on the spectrum, uh, you you will still be making positive value to the system. And the fact that you can, no matter where you sit on that spectrum, have the same level of security as if you sat with the entire history, uh, that's a revolution in our industry. And That's what we'd like to move towards with the new data model.
0: Interesting.
1: Yeah, that was an incredible explanation. Thanks, Charles. I, I have always thought about how do we store all of this information um, on the blockchain? And I, I understand metadata is stored separate, operated on separate, uh, but to keep the transaction history forever, it'll be tough. I think it'll be doable. You know, storage size and space grows as time goes on. Right. Have you ever seen that um, series on, I think it's on Hulu called Devs? It just came out about eight weeks ago. And the last one was last Thursday, Devs. Devs. D- no, D-E-V. no, I, I, I haven't say. seen that yet. I'm still trying to finish the last season of BoJack Horseman.
2: That's how okay. far back I am.
1: <laughs> okay. If, any, if anyone hasn't seen that, it's really interesting. Uh, the, it, the general idea is, okay, they got a quantum computer. But I think it's the storyline that's more interesting than the science. So it's a pretty good show.
2: Well, I tell you, for computation, the most magical thing I've seen the last week is Stephen Wolfram. he didn't even tell me he was doing this. You know, Stephen is this type of guy. He's crazy, guys. He's amazing. He just said, hey, by the way, I've been working on this computational theory of everything. And uh, yeah, we've made some pretty substantial progress towards it. And he dumped like a 500-page book and all these blog posts about uh, the things he's working on and he's been working on for the last year or so. Uh, so I'd highly recommend going to his blog post and seeing the things he's done. He's got these beautiful hypergraph pictures and these things. But he actually has a viable approach to a computational theory of everything. You know. So it's, it's just amazing how much stuff is going on. And then the minute I talked about it, people are like, oh yeah, Eric Weinstein has, has also started saying some things about that. and Lisi may be upgrading his, uh, his E8 model so no matter what you're interested in, there's like five people somewhere in the world who like, have tangible, credible, cool things that, uh, that they're doing. Um, as for devs, it's like same for content. You, you know, I haven't even watched The Mandalorian yet, you know, all these, these things. And so there's just so much content that's coming out there. I haven't had a chance to watch The Westworld season three, uh, so I'm waiting for that to finish. So it's, uh, it's getting overwhelming. And I think the future is about who can curate all this and you know, make it understandable because there's
1: too much of it. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Charles. And and we're coming up on an hour and 30 minutes. We did have to touch on Sunbar. Are you okay? We're going to shift gears a little bit. Yeah.
0: I'm not going to spend too much time on this, but I would like everyone to go to the Cardano Foundation website. And thank you to the Cardano Foundation for sponsoring this episode. And this is a press release that was written by Bakit. It was released on April 7th of 2020, and SANBA stands for South African National Blockchain Alliance. And I'm going to read the first few sentences and just give a couple thoughts about it. Basically, it says the Cardano Foundation welcomes the establishment of the SANBA, South African National Blockchain Alliance, and looks forward to exploring further ways to expand its footprint in the region. South Africa aims to employ blockchain in its efforts to boost socioeconomic growth, and SANBA will play a key role. The establishment of Sanba, Cardano Foundation's newest ally in driving adoption of blockchain, it's a step forward towards bringing an in economic inclusion to the country of 59 million. So it sounds like the Cardano Foundation is really trying to build up on these partnerships, especially since we are looking to bank, the unbanked, and these are the regions that we need to start with. Uh, Speaking about South Africa, the RAND has dropped in value in comparison to the U.S. dollar 8% in the past month. And although the U.S. is printing a lot of money, I do feel like we're in a deflationary period right now in the U.S. before we hit that inflation. Um, But a lot of these other currencies around the world are really going to be falling first before the US, we we even realize that, that there's damage to the dollar or the average person realizes there's damage to the dollar. So positioning yourself within these emerging markets as a cryptocurrency blockchain company is definitely going to put us one leg forward, especially if these countries decide to completely, not completely abandon their local fiat currency, but transition to other forms of currency that may be a little bit more stable than their actual currency that they use. The the joke has been that cryptocurrency has been the most unstable currency of all time. But now in these markets, it seems like fiat is dropping left and right and stocks are going out of control. So I think that in the future, certain countries and certain economies are going to be looking for alternate solutions. So positioning ourselves here, I think it's a a good thing to do. Rick, what do you think? I I haven't
1: even been thinking on that. You know, I just... Right now, we are in a global depression caused by the COVID problem. Okay, and Charles A. M. A. last night he talked about it very well. So check out his AMA and what he had to say about COVID and what the real impact is. But in the in the long term game, it's it's a minor setback. We'll be fine. Uh, just everyone stay calm. We'll be okay. But this th- it was a huge uh, the huge economic impact, and I think coming out of it with those six trillion dollars that've been printed, it's just going to make. The economy kind of explode, but it's like a false explosion, I guess. I'm not an economist. This is not financial advice, but you know, all that money's out there now. All those checks have gone out to people. All that money's been dumped from the Fed into the main banks, and it's like that money's going to percolate through the system. If you're a Ron Paul fan, you know I'm a Ron Paul fan, right? I was, ever since back in old days, and. He said when a government prints money, it's the same as a tax. And they they pushed back tax day, <laughs> printed the money, and it's the same as collecting an income tax because it has the same effect in big systematic picture. So I think what we'll see in months and months on out is you're going to see a huge – you know, and what appears to be an exploding economy, an expanding economy. Combine that with the Bitcoin happening next month. And I think this would be crazy. There's no, I can't even predict what's going to happen. I, I'm not good at predicting anyway, but I just know there's all these different factors and it's going to be pretty interesting. It's going to be a roller coaster ride.
0: I think a lot of that money though is still trapped and it only goes to a few industries. And I mean, the checks that individual Americans are getting is not, it's, it's very, it's a small portion of that 6 trillion that has been printed. So I think that a lot of that money is still siloed And I think that's what puts us in that deflationary period before, I I think the world's going to shit, Rick. I'm just going to keep it real Ah. with you. And um, I don't think this is a slow recovery. I agree with Caitlin, Caitlin Long when she said that, you know, this is not a, although COVID has led to this economy just kind of crumbling, at the end of the day, that debt calculator has been increasing for a long, long period of time. So it could have been COVID. It could have
2: been something else. I don't know. Here's the really fucked up thing, guys, that if you can do math and you, you start understanding these numbers, uh, you could give every single working class so Americans, Americans under the age of 55 who make more than, uh, less than $100,000 in combined income, a $2,000 a month check uh, for basically indefinitely if this model works. Uh, because if you tally the cost of that, it's somewhere between $1.2 trillion to $2 trillion per year uh, for that entire set of people. And we just printed $6 trillion in a thin air. So if the economy can absorb a $6 trillion inflation event and get back to normal and pretend like nothing happened, we could technically just print UBI $1.2 trillion, $2 trillion, give everybody just $24,000 a year. There you go. This is the insanity of our modern monetary theory and, and where we're at. Um, and uh, it's, it's going to start opening up a, a very pervasive dialogue. Like Philippe, I agree with you. I don't think this is going to be a, a quick, short-term recovery. I frankly feel the opposite. You know, more than 30 million people have gotten added to unemployment, and a lot of industries have just been totally devastated and wiped out. The entertainment industry, the travel industry, uh, New York City, for example, has 20,000 restaurants. About half of them are going to go out of business as a direct result of COVID. So you now go from 20,000 employers in that city to 10,000 employers in that city. And then cascades because all that commercial real estate no longer is paying rent. So then those people get hit. And so it's just ripple after ripple after ripple after ripple. But then it brings up a broader philosophical point. If our economy is built on such a shaky foundation that telling people to take a break for a month destroys everything, then is that real? You know, is that is that really something we needed? Because you know, and during the time of the Great Depression, people were savers. Everybody had the ability to survive in the event of a catastrophic economic event. In some cases, years. My grandfather pickled things. His parents pickled things. They, they lived through a lot. Nowadays, we say, oh, you lost your job. Can't make your next paycheck. Can't make your next debt payment. There's no savings mm-hmm. there. So I think it's, uh, Caitlin Long was very right, is that, Everybody who's really smart has been saying we're built up on a house of cards, and there's going to be an event that when you push it a little bit, the whole thing comes collapsing down. And Rick, to your point, I think that one of the primary beneficiaries of that is going to be the uh, the cryptocurrency space, because uh, especially the young, they're going to be looking for monetary alternatives. They're going to say, "Screw this! I just want to opt out." I think that the whole system is immoral, it's unethical, it's evil. Built on lies. And uh, if you can tell me with a straight face that you can just go print $6 trillion and we can expect and experience that, then why the hell are the poor even working? Why even have a job? Yeah. Because it only costs a trillion dollars to give everybody a $2,000 a month check. So why are we working if you
1: can print $6 trillion with yep. no concept? And you know, the guy who was on, I can't remember his name, but he's the bald guy with really dark eyebrows who was saying, We can print as much money as we want. We have unlimited money. That guy, whoever that was, he was from the Fed. He was from the Fed. Now, if you listen to his mouth, it sounds like, okay, he's saying one thing. But if you look, I I read facial expressions. When people are talking, I look at their face and does their face match their words? That guy's face said panic. Yes. (laughs) That guy's face had panic written all over it. So the words coming out of his pie hole don't count. I'm like, dude, he's lying because his face says panic and his mouth says we can print as much money as we want, but th- I'm telling you, if it, p- faces don't lie, body expressions don't lie. That's where the truth. And if they match, you're good. But if they mismatch, right. something's
2: wrong. Right. And that, and guy I, was, I, that guy was I, I that guy was panicking. And I said, I this, this is starting to smell a lot like one coin to me. I don't I don't <laughs> like this token.
1: <laughs> yeah. All right. So I got a bet for you guys. All right. Six months from now, I'm saying, you know, pretty good recovery, six months out. I think we'll be okay. We'll kind of like, we'll be bounced back. You guys want to take a bet? 100 data.
0: 100 data. Uh, yeah. I'm on the opposite bounce side back. Of that. Yeah, no, no, no. Six months. You would no. take me up? The, yeah. Well, okay.
2: the, the problem is that, you know, there's there's like a recovery. And is this like a global dead cat bounce? Because the problem is that you can print huge sums of money to create a short-term recovery. So in six months, we could actually see a very strong recovery. But at some point, the reaper is going to take his prey. Uh, So I I think that this is just going to further exacerbate things. And then what's going to cause the depression is the social unrest. You know, look at Italy, for example. They were already moving towards populism. And there was a real tangible conversation there about leaving the European Union. All of that is being taken up to 11 now as a consequence of the quarantine as they exit this. So if the European Union uh, suffers the loss of Italy, it could collapse. The same for the United States. There's going to be enormous social unrest, huge amounts of protests and these other things that occur uh, because the poor are going to get screwed. They always get screwed in these things. And they're going to say, why does it just keep getting worse and worse? Why do the banks get another bailout? And we got nothing. You fucked us. So you could be right that we see a dead cat bounce recovery in six months because they've injected so much money into the economy to do that. But then the social unrest will unravel the, the social order of things because it's an uneven recovery. The, you know, it's like It was so disingenuous when Trump was sitting there talking about the stock market going up. It's like, yeah, okay, stock market's going up, but 30 million people have lost their job. There's no greater example of a decoupling of reality the stock market's not tracking economic fundamentals. It's tracking value increase for a small set of people. And those, those inequalities, those, those structural problems that have now been exacerbated by this, I think will carry us into a very uncertain economic time, collapse a lot.
1: Yep. When you don't see your favorite cashier at your local store, you don't see your favorite waitress over at your favorite restaurant, that's reality.
2: Yeah, and that, that not a person, person don't like, have a job. Local store now not in business. Yeah, your local yeah. restaurant's gone. It's not in business. So everybody say, hey, we have a recovery. You say, but ten thousand up to twenty thousand restaurants are gone. They're just they're just done. The XFL just folded. I guess we don't have a football competitor. Pretty sad about that.
1: Yeah, yeah. All right, we have. So I got to caveat that bet, Philippe. If I lose in six months, I got to pay you. But it's a smart contract. <laughs> so six, a year after that, if it crashes, I I got to give it back. <laughs>
0: okay. <laughs> okay. First
1: smart contract on the ground effect. Okay, we Charles. Have, Rick
0: has so many outstanding bets uh, for Ada. He, he's bet everyone in the community. I,
1: I only think. lost yeah. to Kyle o. It, it's He's
2: got. A, he's got a gambling problem.
1: Yeah. That everyone in crypto does <laughs> because they're in crypto. They're ga- they got a gambling problem. <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> you got to have a propensity for risk whenever you get involved with crypto. <laughs> Definitely. Definitely. Like riding motorcycle, I learned last night, Charles rode it, ride the Ducati Monster. Oh my God, dude, I wanted the Ducati Monster. i was going to trade my Suzuki for that. Ducati. I bought it for
2: $8,000 years ago. I wrecked it like four times. I <laughs> nearly killed myself so many times on that bike. It was, it was <laughs> a very dangerous purchase. I, I replaced it with a sports car. So I uh, it's slightly safer, I, although I don't know how much. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, there's no, no such thing as a minor motorcycle accident. So I'm glad you got into the sports car. But yeah, I like I like those. They're, they're nice looking bikes. What do you got? What do you ride? Ducati uh, 650 DL V-Strong. Oh, it's a, that's great. It's that's a little great. tall. It's got a very smooth V-twin on it. A very smooth V-twin. A little bit tall for me. I'm a short guy. How big is the engine? Is it 650? 650. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's not a psycho 650. It's a very smooth European style enduro, you know. Yeah. 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 It's nice. It's nice. But at uh, Ducatis, I love the sound of them things. The engines sound great. There was, there was one question I got to get to, chat. We got to wrap it up, guys. You guys good? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. They asked about Ledger Ledger Live. That question has come up a lot. So we got to hit that one. I love Ledger. I love Ledger Live. So let's kind of break this down. Will we eventually have Ledger with Datalist?
2: The whole point of Flight is that we're going to get Ledger with Flight really quickly. Um, Because the wallet backend has been redesigned in a way that makes adding features pretty easy, um, I think probably within three to six weeks, we should see in the Flight program Ledger support. Uh, I I personally use Ledger. I think it's the most secure way of using a cryptocurrency at the moment. And I'm getting real tired that I have to use another company's product to, uh, to use my Ledger device. So I want that as quickly as we can get it. And it's it's just one of those things that for three years we wanted to do it, but it's just been always on the back burner. But now that Byron Reboot is out, it's it's something we can get out pretty rapidly. The more interesting Ledger question is when do we get cold staking support and multi sig support, and when do we get on Ledger Live? So that requires a firmware update and a lot more work to be done. And the foundation has gotten a contractor. I think it's Vacuum Labs. And their quoted scope of work was about 90 days months to do all that work and i think they started that relationship in march so with any luck maybe that firmware is going to be done june time period to july time period and so that interface that we build for byron for ledger will just simply be updated when the firmware is ready for it to include a multi-stick support and to include a cold
1: um, sticking support for ledger okay excellent okay. thank you for that charles
0: okay Okay. Let's wrap up this episode then. So I'd like to thank all the listeners and viewers of the Cardano Effect. Thanks for tuning in. It's uh Saturday, af- it's Sunday afternoon here now. So wherever you're tuning in, we appreciate your support. Please remember to like, comment, and subscribe. And this is our weekly live stream series. And we were actually supposed to take phone calls today. Rick and I were, were, were messing around with Zoom earlier and we wanted people to call in, but the issue is Zoom shows your phone number we can change that once the caller gets in but we don't want the world seeing your phone number so we're going to have to figure out another solution to get live callers onto this podcast not video just audio so we can just see how the community is feeling maybe next time but we had we got a bigger surprise charles showed up so please tune into our live streams you never know what's going to happen so with that i'm going to, charles you get the final words do you have anything to say to the listeners and viewers of the cardano effect and we appreciate you jumping on
2: well, thank you guys so much for spending this Sunday morning with us. I uh, I truly do appreciate it. You know, this is one of my favorite shows, and to watch it evolve from an idea to where it's at today has been pretty amazing. I mean, when is your guys' 100th episode? When is that coming? It'll be, so we're on 85, 15 more
1: episodes. Uh, we're at about four per month. we're looking at four to five months. So. Holy moly, during September, the Gogan October, era,
2: yeah. you know, late Shelley era, you guys will be in the hundredth episode. It's, it's just amazing how quickly time flies. And mm-hmm. uh, it's amazing how quickly we've grown as an ecosystem. It's, uh, it's humbling. Uh, you know, and it's so cool that we're now actually doing things like ads for Samba. You know, this, this is a state sponsored event, the South African uh, National Blockchain Alliance. I mean, like literally scientific ministries are working together and Cardano Foundation's right there front and center working with them. Do they say, hey, can you guys uh, broadcast that? They're asking us. Uh, so it's, it's really shown how much we've changed. So I appreciate the passion, the excitement. And I think the greatest moment will be when you guys get a treasury uh, grant from Cardano to, to do the Cardano effect. Because then it's like, you're truly, totally, 100% objective. You work, you work for a blockchain. You don't work for anybody else. And we're so close to that, like literally not months, not years, away from that reality. So uh, keep the faith, keep the passion, love the fact that you're innovating still, creating the live stream. Uh, and I, I hope that uh, actually when we do our virtual summit here for the launch of Shelley, we learn a lot from that as well. And potentially you may be able to take some of these things and give it to you guys to work on the, with the Cardano effect. Like we've been exploring using VR uh, in all kinds of cool ways to interact with people for the presentation. So you might be able to sneak that in for the uh, for future live streams and so forth. In any event, uh, it's been a lot of fun and we should do this more often. See ya. Definitely. Bye everyone.